When I think of Herbert Hoover, this is what I think of. It's a song from the musical Annie. The Great Depression is raging, and there's a scene where little orphan Annie stumbles into a Hooverville, which is what they called the shanty towns that sprung up when millions of Americans lost their jobs and their homes and were starving on the streets during the Depression. The word Hooverville was, of course, a jab at President Hoover, who was in the White House as the country spiraled downward. So this was basically the extent of my image of Hoover, a failed president during the Great Depression. This week, we are going to get a much richer picture of him, starting with the fact that Hoover, like Annie, was an orphan. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is the 30th episode of Presidential. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you is to live in infamy. Last week with Calvin Coolidge, we spent a lot of time talking about economics. So this week, even though we're now at the Great Depression and there are a lot of interesting economic questions to explore, we're not actually going to get too into the weeds on economic policy. Instead, I'm interested in the fact that Hoover entered the White House looking extremely qualified for the role. He was a self-made millionaire, an astute businessman. He had led the U.S. Food Administration. He had helped lead relief efforts in World War I. And he had served as Secretary of Commerce. So why was his presidency so unsuccessful? Exploring that question with me this week is biographer Charles Rappley. He recently published the book Herbert Hoover in the White House. So, Charles, thanks for being my guide for Hoover this week. Nice to be here. So let's just start at the beginning of his life. Yes. So Herbert Clark Hoover was born in 1874 in a small town in Iowa, West Branch. And so I know that both of his parents died when he was young, but... Could you give me a bit more of a vivid picture of what his childhood was like? I mean, they were poor, and uh, that was their life, but it was in a a poor community. His father was a small-time entrepreneur, opened a blacksmith shop, sold some dry goods. Hoover was six when his father died. And then uh, it was three or four years later that his mother got sick and died. She was a Quaker who was invited to preach at other meetings, In fact, that's when she got sick and died, was walking home from a meeting a couple miles away from West Branch. She caught pneumonia? She caught pneumonia. Soon after that, he was sent out in care of an uncle to Oregon. So Bert grew up pretty lonely. He had his older brother with him at first, but then they were separated. He helped his uncle in chores. It was not a warm environment. When he was 14 and 15, he was working at the counter for the land company that his uncle had started up, selling off lots. Uh, He slept on a cot behind the counter. He studied math in his spare time. He didn't attend school after grade school. He spent all his time in the office. So he was a very isolated fellow and um, 
socially held back. But in his 18th year, a college recruiter came through, a guy uh, representing the new Leland Stanford College that was being started in Palo Alto in California. And somehow he found Bert Hoover and administered a test to him and uh, was impressed with his diligence and his industry and invited him to join the college with the one proviso that he had done poorly on the writing and the English. So he had to get some tutoring and he was a little bit handicapped in English. He had real trouble with it. Uh, after his four years at Stanford, his one barrier upon graduation was that he was also uh, held back to be tutored in English and they had to give him dispensation to graduate. Hmm. And the irony being that later in his life, after his presidency, Hoover spent the rest of his years producing volumes and volumes of books, taking the one thing that he was considered to be least skilled at of all the intellectual endeavors he could have pursued, uh, writing became his principal occupation. And it says something about Hoover because Hoover is full of contradiction and never accepted the limits that he was faced with personally or otherwise. So... Why don't we pause here for just one second? Um, why is the detail that he grew up Quaker important? You know, in a number of biographies about Hoover, that's that's sort of a detail that's brought to the forefront. What what insight does that give us about his character or his values, the way he saw the world? Certainly, uh, his Quaker upbringing uh, informed his worldview. He was he was a pacifist, and that does not mean he was. Uh, against war in any case, but he was always anti-militarism. But um, I think it's a mistake to consider Hoover an active Quaker. A number of biographers, it's true, have portrayed Hoover as the Quaker president and uh, have looked for his character in light of his Quaker upbringing. But I think that that, that has largely been overemphasized. Herbert Hoover, after he left West Branch, had little to do with the Quaker church. So he he enters Stanford, and this is the very first class at Stanford University. It's the year that it starts, and he ends up majoring in geology. And, yes. and so he also falls in love with the only woman at Stanford who's also a geology major. Um, her name was Lou Henry. Tell me a bit more about his temperament. If I were Lou sitting in one of these geology classes with him and then being asked out on a date by him, who's this man that I would encounter? Well, he was shy and retiring, very sort of close-mouthed, but uh, he was also very smart. He had a self-deprecating and warm sense of humor. He liked the outdoors. He loved the outdoors, as did Lou. They shared that. Uh, I mean, he was brilliant and she was attracted to that. Uh, at one point on the campaign trail, somebody observed to Lou, oh, you're, you're very accomplished as well. You also got a geology degree at Stanford. And she said, yes, I, I majored in geology at Stanford, but I've majored in Herbert Hoover ever since. Um, hmm. She was very committed to Bert. And they, he graduated two years before she did. And he left Stanford and uh, toiled in mines in California. He worked under a mining engineer who saw his talent and uh, received a query from a European firm seeking a manager for new mining operations in Australia. And uh, Hoover went to Australia and then after he'd been away for a couple of years, he proposed to Lou and they went out to uh, 
Australia and then Asia together. They were running mining operations in China during the Boxer Rebellion. And uh, Lou was packing a pistol and minding the perimeter and, and feeding other expats who were trapped behind the, the, the lines. And uh, it was an adventure. They lived a life of adventure together. Yeah, they were in Russia, they were all over the world, and they had their two little children, two boys. I think I came across in my bit of research that by the time they came back to the U.S., she could speak eight languages, and that there would be times when they would talk in Mandarin together when they didn't want people to overhear what they were saying to each other. <laughs> yes, she was quite the linguist. Also, she had great knowledge of botany and biology. She was the leader on their collaboration, the hobby that they did together, which was to take an ancient Roman mining text and translate it for the first time. They used to give volumes as gifts to people. <laughs> they were celebrated in the mine in the world of mining and mineralogy. They were they were quite the <laughs> quite the accomplished couple. And Hoover had a consultancy with offices on six continents and headquarters in London. And that's where he was when World War One broke out and he moved into public life. Yeah. So he has he ends up having this very successful career as a businessman, even though, I mean, all the way back when he was at Stanford, he was doing jobs on campus to try to pay for his schooling. And he really is one of those stories of like a self-made millionaire. So how is it that he then transitions into public service. By age 40, he had made his fortune and he was looking for a more useful role, a public role. And his initial instinct was not to run for office. He was thinking of buying a newspaper. He was thinking of engaging in some kind of public life. He was in London and he was talking this way, thinking about what his next move would be in terms of sort of career when the war broke out. And uh, very quickly, it appeared that there was there was something of a crisis for Americans stranded in Europe. And so uh, he and Lou became very active in setting up a sort of instant charity of uh, providing for these people, finding places for them to stay, working on their transportation and uh, giving them money to tide them over. And they were excited and, and energized by this project of theirs that they had sort of fallen into. And uh, the next thing that developed rather quickly was the appearance of a humanitarian crisis in Belgium. There was a there was immediate prospect of of starvation, and so Hoover uh, got very active in collaboration with the government of Belgium, which was a neutral government. He started a fundraising project, Belgian Relief, and it rapidly became one of the biggest operations. During the war, uh, the biggest charity maybe the world had ever seen. At one point, Hoover had 600 ships sailing under his neutral flag of Belgian relief and getting boatloads of food into Belgium. It was a huge operation. He developed a cadre of people working under him who were very loyal to him. It was probably Hoover's greatest hour. And he proved himself to be uh, amazing administrator of emergency situations. He came away with a couple of sort of colloquial titles. One was the great humanitarian, and the other was the master of emergencies. 
And so it's uh, these it's these humanitarian efforts that catch the eye of President Woodrow Wilson at the time. And exactly. what's their relationship like? And I mean, they belong to different parties, even. Wilson was a Democrat. Hoover was a Republican. But he brings him into the fold of his administration, right? True. Although, at that point, Hoover was not a Republican. Hoover was an expat. Hoover had no party. Mm. And so when, when uh, Woodrow Wilson brought him into his administration, Hoover was just the, uh, the man from Europe. And he came in, he was appointed as food administrator. And uh, he was very successful there as well, just as in Belgian relief. And, and he was able to uh, bring about substantial changes in American consumer habits. In light of the war effort, they were conserving on different things. Uh, some days they were conserving on meat. He had meatless Mondays, and they were asking civilians not to use lard and not to use different things. And it was all voluntary. And that was a hallmark of Hoover's effort was not to, to avoid rationing, to avoid price controls, to use exhortation and publicity campaigns to get people to follow the new policies. The phrase came into usage to Hooverize. Um, he became a, a very popular public figure. His reputation was for competence and for sobriety and for doing things the right way. Hoover became very famous during the war as a, as a sort of do-good public figure. Uh, he was friendly with Woodrow Wilson. He wrote a book about Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson showed him a lot of respect, but this was all toward the end, and, and uh, he supported Wilson in his uh, effort to get the U.S. to sign on to the League of Nations, and he was disappointed, as Wilson was, when that failed. So by 1920, when Wilson is leaving office... Because of all these good deeds that, you know, have attracted some public attention to him, his name actually comes up as a potential Republican presidential candidate. But this is the year that Warren Harding ends up getting the nomination instead. Harding, when he's president, though, makes Hoover his secretary of commerce which is his next big government role. I, I mean, Harding's administration overall was known for having a lot of scandal, but Hoover and the Commerce Department were one of the sort of rare exceptions. Yes. So what was his, what was his tenure like as Secretary of Commerce? Harding, when he was elected, he went to Hoover and said he could have basically any position he wanted. He wanted Hoover in his cabinet. And Hoover elected for commerce, which was at that point the most recent and one of the least consequential cabinet posts. But Hoover changed that over the course of the next seven years. He was a dynamo as Secretary of Commerce. And it was a time, of course, the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, of amazing technological innovation and transformation. The advance of the automobile and the radio and aviation. All of these things were dramatic. They were unexpected. And Hoover had a hand in, in implementing and managing and integrating all this stuff into the American economy. He was also obsessed with the idea of industrial waste, which he considered to be anything from labor strife to inefficiency. And again, continuing this process of making himself a household name. He was sort of the crown bureaucrat of this very bureaucratic era. The Department of Commerce grew dramatically under his tutelage. Uh, they warred with other departments 
for things like uh, agricultural statistics. He was trying to steal them from the ag department and put them under commerce. And uh, he rubbed some people the wrong way. He was sort of the Boy Scout who was always telling people what to do. But he was also very popular. And his, his reputation was for technical mastery and for competence. And it sort of peaked in 1927 with the Mississippi flood when President Calvin Coolidge sent him out to Mississippi to uh, coordinate the disaster relief. And this was confirmation of his preeminent role in the cabinet and also of his role as master of emergencies. From what we see of him as a humanitarian during World War One, and then leading the U.S. Food Administration and then as Secretary of Commerce. What's the leadership style that we're seeing emerge for him? It seems like someone who's proactive, jumping in and solving problems. Absolutely. All of that. And something of an autocrat, which is uh, not part of his usual profile. But that was really his mode, was he would issue decisions and, and he would have minions who would follow them closely and work very energetically to make them happen. He was very good at directing these kind of projects. Um, instinct, following instinct and going on his gut. That was his mode and it, it was very successful uh, all the way up to his presidency. Underneath it all, what do you think was driving him? Do you think that he... He wanted power. He wanted to be in the center of things. Do you think he was just driven by the goals he was trying to accomplish? Like, what fueled him? Well, I do think his difficult childhood led him to a conflicted core where he wanted attention. He wanted acknowledgement and some degree of adulation. But he's also very retiring. He remained socially awkward. One close friend called him a gregarious hermit. He would go <laughs> off in the woods. He loved to go off in the woods where a lot of times people go there to be by themselves, but he always wanted people around. He didn't want to do it by himself. He was constantly conflicted on the question of friends and associates, on the question of politics. When he ran for president, he made a total of five speeches and he wouldn't talk to reporters. He wouldn't talk to people. He didn't like talking to people he didn't know. He didn't like the glad handing and the handshaking. Quite the opposite of Al Smith, his rival in the 28 election, who loved the whole process of politics and the back slapping and the laughing and the chatting with reporters on the train. And you get these accounts from the reporters who loved covering Al Smith and hated being assigned to Hoover because it was so deadly. There was nobody to talk to. He was occasionally come out and make some gruff utterances. People didn't recognize this as the same guy who had been so helpful and so useful at the Department of Commerce. It's as if the closer he got to the presidency, Hoover withdrew more into himself. And he talked about the dignity of the office and how he wouldn't want to compromise it. But it seemed like the closer he got to being president, the more fearful he got that he actually would be discovered to be the person who wouldn't measure up to that job. When you look at Hoover, it's hard to resist a little bit of pop psychology to try to figure out what it was that was so conflicted in this guy who had so much yearning for that kind of power and prominence. But at the same time, when it came to him, he froze in the spotlight. By the time the conventions roll around in 1928, 
Hoover is basically a shoo-in for the Republican presidential nomination, and in his acceptance speech, after he's officially nominated, he says, In America today, we are nearer a final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of any land. The poorhouse is vanishing from among us. We have not yet reached the goal, but given a change to go forward with the policies of the last eight years, and we shall soon, with the help of God, be in sight of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation. But the country was not nearer a final triumph over poverty. In fact, it was just the opposite. The devastation of the Great Depression would come crashing down not long after Hoover took over the presidency. So Hoover enters the White House in 1929. And so, Charles, what kind of impression do we get of the type of leader that he wanted to be in that role and what he had hoped he would be able to accomplish in his presidency? And then where does he where do we start to see the cracks emerging? He was very committed to this idea of cooperation as opposed to government coercion. He was very anti the idea that the government would tell people what to do. But at the same time, he had big ambitions for what the government could do. He launched his presidency by calling a special session of the Congress to deal with agriculture. Throughout the, all the heyday and the success of the Roaring Twenties, agriculture had been largely left behind. So there were a number of initiatives that he asked the Congress to undertake. But having convened the special session of Congress, he then stood back and sort of took his hands off the wheel. And the discussions in Congress quickly sort of reeled off, particularly they opened up the question of the tariff. And so his party in Congress took on supporting agriculture through agricultural tariffs, except once the tariff question got opened up, it was quickly inundated with uh, requests for higher tariffs from the various industries across the country. And this, uh, this process, which was supposed to be quick and supposed to be focused, quickly became sprawling, unmanageable. It dragged on for 18 months, and it resulted in the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which many economists considered to be a disaster, and some believe led to the Great Depression. I think the general consensus today is that it wasn't that big a factor, that trade was already in terrible shape, but it was a political disaster for the Hoover administration. It first exposed to the American public that there was a president there who tended to shy off from political controversy, political dispute, who was not really suited to the give and take of the democratic political process and who resented the horse trading and backslapping that needed to be done to get his agenda through Congress. In 1930, his second year in office, the Congress had pretty much turned against him. They had rejected a Supreme Court nomination for the first time in like 80 years, and that by a Congress controlled by his own party. This was politically uh, devastating. And Walter Lippmann, the great the great pundit of the time composed the cover story of a national magazine under the title uh, The Peculiar Weakness of Mr. Hoover. And suddenly it was there for the whole nation to see that the president that they'd elected, this technocrat, this master of emergencies, was not the master of the Congress, not the master of the White House, and, and in fact was beleaguered and widely considered ineffectual. This all happened before the Depression arrived. So that you get the prospect of a wounded and damaged, politically damaged, compromised president then being confronted 
with the greatest economic challenge the nation had ever seen. It just makes the, the whole situation look a little more dire as you see Hoover and his handicaps in political office coming into play. And the presidency was actually the first elected office that Hoover had held. Um, he had never served in Congress. He had never served in a state legislature. Was it just that lack of experience, you think, that was really at the root of his inability to understand how to be an effective political operator? I guess the question would be, you know, would a couple of terms in Congress have have taken off some of the rough edges, would have learned him to sort of open up and be more human in his communications with the American people? And I think the answer is probably no. I think I think Hoover was constitutionally ill suited to the business of being a democratically elected leader. Especially when the crisis came on, there was a general understanding. Something had to come from the White House in the way of some kind of reassurance so that people would know that there was somebody listening, somebody paying attention to their situation, trying to do something about the problem. That's a lot of the game right there is just to instill that that sense that they're not alone. Uh, Hoover failed in that role. I don't think it was a matter of his lack of experience. I think it was a matter of his character... It was just a poor fit. You know, he just didn't have the makeup for that office. And I think he learned that and the American people learned that somewhere along the same time and not very far into his presidency. Yeah. So it's in October of 1929, toward the end of his first year in office, when we get the beginning of the stock market crash. Um, What did Hoover see as his responsibility here? Like, how does he begin to respond when the depression hit, he was among the first to recognize what a dire threat it was, that major unemployment was likely to follow from the stock market crash. And uh, he got very busy on trying to respond to it. But again, his goal was to do it through voluntary action and not by coercive government fiat. So he called in leaders of business and industry from all over the country in a series of conferences and spoke to them privately. The press was not invited. In these conferences, he went to the businessman and he said, look, things are going to be really rough. This is going to be very difficult. And it's incumbent on you to not do what businesses usually do when they're faced with a depression, and that is to immediately fire half your people or cut wages or both. And he leaned on them to maintain employment, to double down and to stave off the depression that was coming. It was derided at the time and later as sort of not the real effectual uh, action that was needed. But in fact, it did result in wages staying relatively high for quite a while. It was not true that Hoover was caught flat-footed, that he didn't recognize what was happening, that he didn't respond to it, that he didn't care. That's unfair and not true. Uh, Hoover recognized that trouble was coming but there's a, there's a couple things that have to be kept in mind. One is that the federal government had never, up to this point, taken direct responsibility for the fortunes of the American economy. Hoover was the first to respond that this is something that we're going to have to deal with. We in the government have to take this on. It's also true that the economy in 1930 was, in 1929, was more complex, more sophisticated, and more interrelated more urban than it ever had been before. 
And the urban economy is much more vulnerable to the shocks of economic setback, like a depression, than a rural agricultural economy. Rural agricultural economies, people have more resources at hand. They can go to a root cellar and find food stored up for the winter. Urban unemployed people don't have those kind of resources that they can fall back on. And so the, the country was entering a crisis the likes of which it had never seen. And so Hoover was forced to improvise. And over the couple of years that followed, Hoover came up with important measures in terms of banking and credit facilities that anticipate the bank financing program that was implemented in the United States in the face of the Great Recession in 2009. Very forward-thinking programs, very uh, sophisticated approach to the question of what was going wrong with the economy, none of which does Hoover get much credit for. But I can say that in studying his progress in the face of the Depression, he showed himself to have some of those attributes of creativity and commitment to solving the crisis that he had shown before he came into office and why he got elected in the first place. So, I mean, by 1932, about 25% of Americans were unemployed. And one thing that just struck me as very interesting in researching Hoover and that I think is still a question that comes up for presidents every time there's a crisis is how Hoover, even though it seems like he did actually understand the stakes and devastation of what was happening, he went out to the public and delivered statements that kind of sounded naive. Statements where he was trying to assure people that everything was fine. And I mean, on the one hand, there's a case to be made that a leader should get out there and try to boost the national psyche and that restoring some sort of psychological confidence would perhaps help stabilize and restore economic confidence. On the other hand, it seemed like it had the effect of making him look out of touch with what people in the country were actually going through. I'd love your thoughts on whether that whether that was a good leadership move to sort of go out there and paint a picture that things weren't quite as bad as they were rather than um, being more straight with the public about the challenges. Well, I think that is one of the principal areas of Hoover's failure. Uh, Hoover couldn't bring himself to identify with the sort of pain that people were, were running into. And I think there were a couple of factors that go back to his upbringing and his poverty and his loneliness as a, as a young boy, I think it, it made it hard for him to feel, to demonstrate a lot of empathy. Uh, he'd been through tougher times himself, and it was hard for him to feel like people really needed a hand since he'd been able to get through it. They probably ought to as well. He believed that the danger in America and he said it. The greater danger to America is that people would abandon their self-reliance in favor of waiting for somebody to come and help them out and take care of them. And he saw that as, as eroding the American culture, the American sort of can-do approach to the world, the thing that, made, that in his mind made America different than the rest of the world. So he, he was inhibited from any feeling that, that it was time to help out. And that, that became his enduring legacy the guy who wouldn't listen to the cries for help. And, and ironically, the project that he did get behind and support was a TARP program, a bank bailout, 
Hoover wouldn't give food to hungry people in the rural areas of the country, and he wouldn't provide relief to the urban unemployed, but he would provide millions of dollars to banks. People couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense to them. It seemed cruel and callous, and Hoover's had to live with that legacy for the rest of his life. And that's, you think, a fair characterization? Or do you, I mean... Do you think, think he actually had wanted to help all the people who were suffering, but he just didn't figure out the best way to go about it? Hoover felt deeply this idea that he was cold and indifferent. I mean, it hurts him to know that that's what people thought of him. Yet he was principled and committed to his outlook. He did believe that charity should be undertaken but not as a function of the federal government. That was for state and local government and for community charities. And he talked a lot about that. He said that if we start using federal government for aid in emergencies and in famine and things like that, we will eviscerate the culture of charity that was a hallmark of American society at the time. So in a way, it almost seems if you played out the hypothetical scenario, Hoover might have actually played a much more powerful role in helping people in the Great Depression if he hadn't been president. If he were just a private citizen and, you know, the millionaire businessman who saw people around him starving and decided to help. Or even the cabinet member who was assigned by the president to go out to one of the great problems of the early depression was a drought in 1930 that swept across the south central region of the U.S. And it was the natural position that Hoover would have been sent down there and he would have been orchestrating the deliveries of food and as he did with the Mississippi flood. But uh, yes, he probably would have found a much more useful role and one that uh, people would have applauded instead of one that people reviled him for. Hoover did run for a second term as president in the 1932 election, but he lost to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, yet he went on to have a very active post-presidency, actually the longest post-presidency we've had so far in American history, 31 years. So who is the Hoover we see after the White House? When Roosevelt won, Hoover started to take it more and more personally that his policies had been repudiated in favor of the Roosevelt program. The rest of Roosevelt's time in office, and actually years after that, after Roosevelt died, uh, Hoover devoted his energies to repudiating Roosevelt and to restoring his own reputation. It put him in a much more partisan role than he had played before. I mean, remember, in 1920, Hoover was actually fielding uh, queries from both parties asking him to run for president. The point being that until his presidency, Hoover was kind of a nonpartisan sort of guy. But in the course of his presidency and in his rivalry with Roosevelt, Hoover really hardened himself into a right-wing position. Hoover railed against the New Deal and against uh, Roosevelt's foreign policy. He believed that the U.S. should never have been involved in World War II. For Hoover, it was a it was a constant battle through the rest of his life to debunk Franklin Roosevelt and restore his own reputation. I think all he did was harden people's image of him. As hard as he got in dealing with Roosevelt, people saw him and only just confirming 
the idea that he was never the right person for the White House and was representing the wrong side of history, really. What do you think is the most important leadership lesson? It's not enough to be an able administrator. It's not enough to have the right idea, the right understanding. What's important in a political leader and in a president in particular is to be able to forge that connection with the electorate, with the American people, to understand what their concerns and their needs are and to to address them in a meaningful way. And uh, for all his quality and for all his insight and acumen, uh, Hoover was never able to approach that sort of connection to the electorate. That hurt him in terms of failing of re-election. It also hurt him in terms of being able to direct the country through the dark times that prevailed in his term. From his home in Palo Alto, California, Hoover did write essays and books and letters on politics, but he also returned to humanitarian work. He chaired an international relief effort for Belgium, Finland, and Poland during World War II. Then under President Truman, Hoover headed the food supply for world famine. He was then chosen by Congress in 1947 to chair a commission on reorganizing the executive branch of government. It came to be known as the Hoover Commission, and it may be one of the most significant ways that Hoover altered the presidency. The commission came up with a number of bureaucratic reforms that strengthened the White House and that became part of the 1949 Executive Reorganization Act. In foreign policy, Hoover spoke out against Truman's use of the atomic bomb and against U.S. intervention in the Korean War. Throughout his lifetime, Hoover also created, financed, and worked to embolden the Hoover Institution, which is housed on Stanford's campus, and it also has a large office here in Washington, D.C. It's a think tank and a research center that has lived on past Hoover's death to become an influential force in policymaking spheres. The economist Milton Friedman was a Hoover Fellow for nearly 30 years, and more recently, an example of a Hoover Fellow is former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. So in a way, Hoover succeeded at making sure that his ideas and ideals managed to outlast and reshape his legacy after the Great Depression. Long after the Hoovervilles disappeared, the mission that he left his self-named institute still plays out in American politics today. And that mission, as he put it, was to point the road to peace, to personal freedom, and to the safeguards of the American system. When Hoover died in 1964, at 90 years old, he was buried in West Branch, Iowa. He finally returned home. Many thanks to my guest this week, Charles Rappoli, the author of Herbert Hoover in the White House. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner, and next week we reach World War II, and we have a great lineup of experts for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs>